Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, would you join me in a word of prayer for Bishop Elias and the folks in South Sudan? Let's pray together. Father, we are reminded that we are gathered together here freely. We are here without fear of persecution because of our faith. We are able to raise our voices, O Lord, in song, and gladly we do. We're able to preach your word without fear of imprisonment, and Lord, help us to hear it and preach it with great zeal. And we're able to leave this place and tell others of the most important thing to us, our relationship with you. And we are reminded that there are many on the globe this moment who face imprisonment, beating, torture, the burning of homes and churches, the loss of life for those very things. We pray that you would stand them fast, that you would hold them fast, that you would strengthen them, that they would, Lord, face those who can kill the body, but after that can do nothing and rejoice in you, the one who raises the dead. We pray for Bishop Elias. We pray that you would strengthen his hand in his work. We pray for the Church of South Sudan. We pray that it would grow stronger and stronger even as the enemy arrays all the battalions of hell against it. We pray that you would conquer the hearts of persecutors, of governments, of those who are lost in their sin and grant them eternal life and everlasting joy in your name. So as we sup together tonight, make us mindful of those who cannot. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, beloved. Okay, so those are the folks who've been here in the morning time. They know that the Baptist preacher is talking. You have to talk back. So it's good to see you all tonight and to share with you tonight. Uh, I'm honored to be able to step in for a moment and talk a little bit about church planting. Uh, My brother said it wouldn't be any difficulty for you to to listen to me, to hear me tonight, but it might be hard for you to look at me. It's a face made for radio, you know. (laughs) And I do want to take a a few minutes to talk about church planting, and and only a few minutes, because um, I want to hear very much from the brother who is is following me. I'm, I'm from a little town in North Carolina, and we like to tell stories. And I understand you guys like to tell stories around here a little bit, too. So let me, if it's okay, tell you one. Stories told of a, a young African-American man who all of a sudden got interested in camping. Doesn't know why, but he just had a, he had a hankering, as we call it, to go camping and camping. And so he talked to some of his friends and says, hey, man, I'm going up into the mountains. I'm going camping. Why don't you go with me? And they looked at him strangely and said, man, black people don't camp, you know. But he was undaunted, and he decided, I'll go, I'll go camping anyway. And, and he bought up some magazines and bought camping gear. And, and the weekend came for him to go camping. He loads up his car. He drives five or six hours up into the mountains. And uh, he's in the mountains. He finds a perfect place to camp. He pitches his tent, and he gets a kettle of coffee on, and the fire's crackling, and the night sky is clear, like it usually is in Bangor, you know. <laughs> and he's sort of easing into tonight, into night. And he hears what 
sounds like a rumbling way off. Wasn't sure what it was. Paid it no attention. But in a couple minutes, he noticed that it was getting louder. And then it grew to be a thud. So he's sitting up in the camp now, and he's wondering to himself, I don't know what people do in the mountains. What's going on? And he hears the cracking of branches and the, and the breaking of limbs. And, and pretty soon he hears snorting, something. And he's worried now. And just as he's getting up to leave the campsite, bursting through the branches into the camp area is this huge black bear. And sitting on the bear is a man about 6 feet 12 inches tall with wild black hair and a black patch over one eye. And he's sitting on that bear, riding that bear, whipping the bear with a rattlesnake. And he's riding right into the camp, and he jumps off the bear. He punches the bear in the head. The bear falls out cold. He walks over to the hot fire. He reaches in and grabs that hot kettle right off the fire, and he drinks that black coffee straight down crushes the can, throws it down, walks back over to the bear, kicks the bear awake, gets up, grabs the rattlesnake, and he raises the rattlesnake to whip the bear, and he looks at him with that one eye, and he says, i got to be going. There's a bad man coming down the hill behind me. (laughs) There's a bad speaker coming up next, so I better do my work real quickly. Church planting. It is all the rage uh, in many quarters of the world right now, made very popular by some very gifted men who have um, spoken and encouraged the church to to take a, a zealous interest in spreading the gospel by spreading churches. In, in fact, that's what the gospel does, right? When the gospel goes someplace, it, it should create not just individual converts, but when we are born again, we are born into a family, the family of God. And so the gospel should be establishing and creating churches. Now, the work that we're doing in Washington, D.C. is very much a part of that kind of movement of planting churches and and planting churches that plant other churches as well. But what we're doing in Washington, D.C. is in some ways a little bit different. We, We are endeavoring to establish ourselves in a part of the city in the kind of neighborhood that rarely gets Christian attention that rarely gets investment. The kind of neighborhood where people seldom think, oh, that would be a great place to to build a church because of the high rates of poverty, because of the high rates of broken homes, because of what is perceived as the hardness of hearts. I, I think maybe to our shame, many of us look to greener fields, easier paths, and decide we'll be more fruitful over there. And sometimes perhaps we mistake fruitfulness for things like number or size or some outward show of success. Well, cities won't be changed if left to politicians. Broken neighborhoods won't be made whole again if if left to elected officials or left to the the best policymakers in the world. Before I became a pastor, I worked for about five years in a Washington, D.C. think tank. If there's ever a a kind of proud name, that's one, right? A think tank. But what it is is a bunch of people sitting around thinking. (laughs) about how to make things better and how to pass policy and so on. And so uh, we would sit around and we would think and we'd leave the room scratching our heads. Here's here's the secret. Politicians and policymakers, 
don't know how to make things better. That's why they argue with each other instead of proposing something. It's easier to argue with each other than actually change a life. And as I worked there for those five years, here's what I became convinced of. The one thing and the one person that I knew who could change any heart in any community was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. And that's probably where my desire to plant churches in tough neighborhoods really spawns. It's going back now some 15 years to the work in that think tank. Let me, let me try to tell you, using the book of Titus, if you want to use the Bibles that are in the pew, you'll find it on page 1200. Let me try to tell you what I think is sort of um, the Bible's church planting manual in difficult places. If you want to, you can go to bookstores or go online. You can find all kinds of books that talk about church planting and, and how to do it. Uh, let me tell you about a book that, that was written almost 2,000 years ago on that very subject. And it's this letter to Titus. And what makes Titus particularly interesting to me is that it's written to people in the kinds of neighborhoods that we're concerned about. You remember what Paul says about Titus uh, there in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Or it says about Crete, excuse me. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, how's that for a reputation? So he's quoting a secular uh, poet. But then in verse 12 or 13, even the apostle agrees. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see, Titus's ministry is happening in a place a lot like southeast Washington, D.C., a place that once had the reputation for being the murder capital of the United States, a place that in the 80s and 90s was ravaged by um, crack cocaine, a place where very few businesses invest and many have left and, and, and many churches have left. And, and that neighborhood is like a lot of neighborhoods across the United States and, and across the world, really. Think of the barrios in, in, in Brazil and South America or uh, the townships in South Africa and, and, and many other places. I'm sure inner city neighborhoods right here in Northern Ireland, in the UK. What we think of as hard places. And in this book, Paul gives Timothy, I, I'm convinced, a, a five-fold church planting strategy. And this is what we call our five M's. This is what we'll be dedicated to and hope you'll pray for us in uh, with the church planting work there in D.C. And the first one is the message of the gospel. You see, Paul begins in verses 1 to 3 with that message, really. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. And notice, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And the first thing that Paul is committed to, as we know his letters, is the preaching of this message, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a Savior and we may, be, we may know him, we may be reconciled to him, and we may live eternally in his love through repentance and faith. Look over in chapter 3, where he, he mentions this gospel again. Or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Isn't that a beautiful description of the gospel? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation there, notice there, for all people, including the people who are, who are broken by this life, including the poor, including those who have criminal backgrounds and criminal presence, you know, the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the unemployed, the battered and the batterer. And notice in verse 14, this is a, a redemption from all lawlessness and a purifying for God's own possession. It's the gospel that changes people, and it's changed people that change communities. So when we go into Southeast D.C., into Anacostia, or we go into any city bearing this message, we are staking our hopes, not on our cleverness, not on political programs. We're staking our hopes on the power of the gospel. And we're betting that God will not allow his word to fall to the ground. That's the first thing, the message of the gospel. Notice the second thing in Paul's strategy. It's the multiplication of leaders. You see it there back in chapter 1 again, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. What's that? And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, verses 6 to 8 go on to give the qualifications for elders. But, but you see that basic charge in verse 5. Uh, Titus is to plant himself in Crete. He is to preach the gospel and be mindful of the gospel. And the gospel is to animate everything that he does. But now he's going to need some help. And he's going to need to spread the work of the ministry among other men, among other qualified godly men here called elders or overseers or bishops. And notice their function down in verses 9 to 11. He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, why? You see, he's got this two-fisted ministry. He instructs in sound doctrine and he refutes those who contradict it. And verse 10 tells us why. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. I mean, the reason we need godly leaders and elders in every church, and especially in the creeks of the world, is because there are false teachers that abound. And they destroy, he says here, they overturn entire families for, for shameful gain. It seems that the prosperity gospel is a very old problem. All the way back to the Apostle Paul himself. I like verse 11. You see what it says there? They must be silenced. Every time I read that, I, I kind of hear Don Corleone in my head. You know, the Godfather. <laughs> they must be silenced. <laughs> it's probably not how he meant it, but you, you the elder has to be such a man with the word in his hands that he, he silences false teaching. And that is for the protection of the people. And so we want to commit ourselves to multiplying leaders in this church planting work, not just for our own church, but to go out into many other churches that are, that are older and dying. 
Churches, just like in Europe and the UK, churches in the United States, many of them being boarded up, many of them being sold sometimes to mosques and other things. We, we need an army of men with blood-stained robes who, who smell of the smoke of the door of hell, who, who camp themselves outside the enemy's domain and who go there boldly with the gospel and are willing to, to stand there on their post and to make Christ known. And so we, we, we envision a movement, if God blesses it, if he blows on it by his spirit, we envision a movement where, as you heard last night and so many other nights, where we would want to train young men for the work of the ministry and to send them out to plant other churches or to go and serve existing churches in communities all around the country. And if he really blows on it all around the world, that Christ might be known and the people might be blessed. Let me show you a third thing. It's right there in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes there, but as for you, referring to Titus and I think to every pastor, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he begins to talk about the various groups in the church. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's, that's a life that it accords with sound doctrine. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I want to say a word to some of the older persons in this room. You are vital to the church by God's design he intends for the pastor to encourage, to disciple to equip the older men and the older women in his church so that the work of the ministry then gets sort of spread more effectively from the older men to the younger men, from the older women to the younger women you know there's some things that just can't be taught by a pastor I cannot teach a young woman how to be a woman or to be a wife. The uh, best persons to do that are older women who have been wives and, and are women. You, you're vital to the work of church planning. I'm praying, pray for me, that the Lord would send out with us lots of older persons in the church plan. And, and pray that he would overcome that notion that, well, I'm, I'm sort of old now. I don't have much to give and I'll just, I'll keep my seat and, and sort of watch the other kids play. Oh man, if you do that, you impoverish the church far more deeply than you know. For you have walked with the Lord longer. You have talked with him more often. You have seen the seasons of life. You know what to get excited about and what will pass. You bring a gravitas to the work of the gospel ministry. You are vital to the work of missions. You are vital to the work of church planning. You're vital to your own local church. And I pray that the Lord would encourage you to see that and embrace that for church planners like me, need you. So the third M for us is to mature men, women, and families. To equip them in the word of God and the gospel to live out the faith as God has called them to. And to see older men and older women fruitfully engaged in the work of the ministry, just as God would require. Let me give you a fourth thing quickly. So we talked about the message of the gospel, the multiplication of leaders, the maturing of men, women, and families. The fourth thing that we are committed to is mercy to our neighbors. Notice there in chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Or look down in verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You know what you really need to change a neighborhood in addition to the gospel? You need people who are changed by the gospel to be good neighbors in the neighborhood, to do good works, to, to be the good Samaritans who see the wounded and the hurt and are moved with compassion and, and relieve the suffering. And so we want to be a church that's committed to showing mercy to our neighbors and, and, and doing that tangibly and doing that zealously, doing it, as it says here, as a devotion, as a spiritual act of commitment to God because we have believed in God. It doesn't save us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But, but that faith alone, which is alone, is dead. Faith issues forth in good works. And church planters and churches ought to be committed to that. Fifth and finally, missions to others. So while you're there in chapter 3, look at verses 12 and 13. You see this back and forth that Paul is, is referring to here. He writes there in verse 12, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to, count to, to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Verse 13, Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack Nothing. We want to be a church right from the start that's committed to finding faithful workers like this who are going, who are crossing through the crossroads of Washington, D.C., and supporting them financially. Much like the Bangor Worldwide Convention is raising funds to support those who are taking the gospel all across the world, the Zenuses and the Apollos of the world. You know, it's a challenge to me that the largest denomination in uh, African-American Christian denomination in the United States for the last year that we have record, I think it's 2009 or so, has thousands of churches. Their total missions budget was 250,000 U.S. dollars. That was on average one dollar per church that year. I, I'm just burdened by that. That can't continue to be the case. Not, not particularly when African Americans have a rich history of, of missions, cross-cultural missions. George Lyle took the gospel to Jamaica and from Jamaica throughout the Caribbean. African Americans who were former slaves went to places like Nova Scotia and there preached the gospel. Or George Morant with the Native Americans there uh, in, in, in what became the United States. We have a rich history of missions. But for the last 100 years, the church has been asleep and silent. And we're praying that the Lord would, with this church plant and many others, light a spark that grows to an explosion and that reaches the four corners of the earth. So our hope is to go from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the earth with the good news, planting churches as God will allow. Thank you for your time. Please pray for us. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.